Hello there, I'm Tom Morath. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Nature's a Hoot. It's our wildlife podcast here at the Hawk Conservancy Trust. This is where we explore the fascinating world of birds of prey, the ecosystems that surround them, and the conservation work being done to protect some of the most threatened species on our planet. In this episode, we'll be chatting to Emma Brisdian. She's a science communicator and fellow podcaster specialising in getting the message across when it comes to our natural world and how we can all do our bit to help. So, welcome to the show. Somehow, the podcasting world feels a little roomier this time around. If you're listening back in September, you'll know that we are now without Hannah Shaw, who started this podcast with me back in September 2020. Yep, Hannah's headed off to work alongside Nature's A Hoot alumni, Kevin Cummings, on a project over the border in Scotland. And of course, we all wished Hannah a fond farewell, and we look forward to catching up with her in the future, maybe even as a guest of the show, who knows? And uh, hopefully she'll come back and tell us a bit more about what she's been getting up to. Uh, For now, though, it's just me, you, and a whole lot of chat about birds of prey, wildlife, and of course, conservation. So it means that the podcast might be a little bit different from now on, but as ever, if you like wildlife, you're in good company. So stick with me, and we can have a good old natter about all things birds and nature. How's that sound? So how are you? How you been? Um, It's been a bit of a weird and uh, strange few weeks for me, um, having managed to avoid uh, picking up covid for nearly two and a half years uh finally got me so i've been kind of incapacitated at home for a little while trying desperately to do emails and uh well writing this show actually um so still trying to keep on top of things um i'm hoping you are all well and you've managed to avoid anything nasty like that um i'm also in the midst of moving house at the moment i'm not sure if you've gone through this horrible experience recently i know it's kind of like first world problems but my goodness me i'd not realized how much stuff that i don't need i once thought that i needed because um so much of this junk is now coming with me to the new house with the rest of the family so i'm sure if you've done it recently you will remember the stresses and strains of uh of moving house i'm in the midst of that at the moment in actual fact as i'm recording this uh, the move date is tomorrow so i probably ought to pack up my my microphone and my laptop and uh, and get a shift on really um but uh, yeah so it's it's a bit of a weird time a bit of a weird week illness and kind of just the unsettled feeling that you're not going to be in the same place for very much longer my little corner of uh, my makeshift recording studio at home is going to be gone very soon and i'll have to find a new one in the new house but um let's see how that goes anyway on with the show Now, I wanted to give you a bit of an update on a couple of things that have been happening at the Trust before we go ahead and speak to our guest for this episode. Uh, Very excitingly, back in September, we were finally able to unveil a project that had been ongoing for some time. It's a building that will enable us to fulfil our aim of supporting wild birds of prey even more than we have been doing over the last few years. So, uh, if you don't know, since 2001... Our on-site National Bird of Prey Hospital has been offering a second chance to injured, sick, orphaned birds of prey. So with funding from supporters and donors, 
can very gladly say we were able to build an annex to the existing hospital and this allows us to treat more patients and make life a little bit easier for Cedric Robert, who's our hospital manager and also member of the bird team, of course. Uh, many of you listening will have met Cedric as part of one of your visits and uh, he's an all-round lovely guy and he's always rushing around from one place to another doing his absolute best for those wild birds that um, sadly, for whatever reason, have found their way to the National Bird of Prey Hospital. Now, the day of the opening, I was here, amongst the great and the good, lots of uh, invited guests, which was lovely to see. It was a little bit on the rainy side, but it didn't dampen our spirits at all. Uh, We were joined by colleagues, friends and supporters of the Trust to celebrate the opening of the new annex. The building was opened by conservationist and star of BBC Springwatch, and of course, past guest of Nature's A Hoot, Megan McCubbin. Uh, Have a listen to this clip of the day we opened the new hospital annex. How long has she been in for? Uh, she just arrived yesterday. Okay, so she's yeah. a new arrival then, really mm. new. Yeah. yeah. Just getting used to it and getting to go straight into a new home. Yeah, yeah, that's new it. hospital. Right, you're home for the next few days at least. Can go up on there? She's good, she's curious, she's alert, she's looking around, she which is, is a positive thing. Yeah. Well, there's lots more rooms, aren't there, for different bird species. You've got the yep. larger ones on the sides and then ones like this one. So yeah. the number of capacity must be increased as well. Definitely. We have doubled up uh, our, our base, or so the indoor space is much bigger now, which is, which is brilliant. It's going to help us a lot. To tell us more about it is Cedric Robert. Now, Cedric, what have we got here and how long are they going to be with you? We've got a juvenile barn owl. Uh, she's about 45 days old and may uh, stay with us for maybe six to seven weeks. Why are places like this so inspiring and why do they matter? It's really important that people come to places like this because often when we see birds, we see them soaring in the sky, which is beautiful and where they should be. But coming to places like this, you get to know the intricate behaviours and the details and that can ignite a lifelong passion for conservation, which is what we need today now more than ever. And we need people like you to support and donate to organisations like this that do such important work infusing generations about biodiversity. And I think it's time we cut the ribbon and officially announce this annex for the National Bird of uh, Prey Hospital open. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Cedric is the hospital manager and we have Hannah who's the conservation coordinator. Get the wrong words out. Um, and they're going to be featured in the film talking about the work that the Bird Hospital does. And at the end of the film, then there's going to be a Q&A. Wow, that was um, certainly very special and totally, I think, represents everything that the Trust stands for. It's that kind of collaboration, but also just that authenticity that you all have and that just clear passion Mm. for the birds and just to make, you know, the UK and obviously the conservation work around the world that the Trust does as well, like a better place and a stronger biodiversity. So honestly, every time I come, I'm amazed by, you know, your passion and everything you do. You're brilliant people, it's great. It was a really, really fun day. It was really nice to see lots of different people there who were in clear support of the work that we're doing uh, with the National Bird of Prey Hospital, the fantastic work of Cedric and his team in the hospital itself. And of course, it's lovely to see Megan again uh, back here at the Trust. Um, very nice to hear our praises sung. And I think rightly so, with the, the work that's that's being done in the hospital, it's, it's invaluable, really. Now, you might have heard during that clip uh, that we made a documentary all about the work of the National Bird of Prey Hospital. Uh, it focused 
focuses on Cedric, the hospital manager, and is hosted and presented by none other none other than Hannah Shaw. So uh, if you're missing Hannah this month, then head over to our website, hawk-conservancy.org, and you can be one of the first to watch Stories from the Hospital, our brand new documentary going behind the scenes of the National Bird of Prey Hospital. As a wildlife advocate and a huge fan of the natural world, um, I'm sure like you, I've always got half an eye on our ever-changing planet and the general state of nature, both in the UK and around the world. It's easy to get bogged down, isn't it, with a changing climate and a general kind of foreboding feeling that our environment and the ecosystems that are a part of it are kind of on the verge of collapse, it sometimes feels. Um, I'm often on the lookout for ways that I can make a difference. And again, I'm sure you're in the same position. Whether it be by watching the amount of energy we're using at home, counting the minutes we're stood in the shower, or even just letting the grass grow wild a little bit more in the garden, there seems to be countless ways that we can do our bit. But which of them actually help? As we know, it's hard to keep on top of the doom and gloom and keep it at bay. Um, there's always been a subject of our, some of our chats here on Nature's a Hoot before. I remember Lucy Lapwing coming on and coining the phrase of eco-dread. So what is it that's happening out there? How can we help? And does any of it really make a difference? I put all of this and more to Emma Brisdian, who kindly agreed to come on the programme to talk all about her work in science and environmental communications. So Emma, thank you so much for agreeing to come on to Nature's a Hoot. Uh, Firstly, how are you doing? Thanks so much, Tom. It's an absolute treat to be here. It's really good to see you again. Yeah, I'm I'm very well, thanks. Uh, We just mentioned off air that I'm feeling very autumnal. I think that's where I'm at right now. I'm good, but I'm feeling very autumnal. Yeah, I've got um, t-shirt, jumper, and fleece on today. So yeah, feeling, <laughs> feeling the feeling the chilly weather coming in, coming in our way. Um, yeah, it's been a little little while since we've caught up because I was very lucky to come on your podcast as well. So we're kind of like exchanging we're a little doing bit a here, which is really yeah, nice. You were, yeah, I had a quick look. You were episode sixty-eight of uh, Ford It's Earth. So thanks. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And I'm I'm glad that I didn't sky you enough that you've actually invited me back onto yours. So thank you. It's lovely to be no, here. It was a it was a total pleasure to talk all things birds of prey with you. Um, and actually, on that topic, are you are you a, a bird? Are you a birder? Would you say you're a birder? I don't. I don't think I would categorise myself as a birder because I know a lot of people who do categorise themselves as birders, and I'm totally not in that realm in terms of like the knowledge. Yeah. But I do love birds. I love birds of prey. Oh, you'll be excited by this. I saw my first white-tailed sea eagle at RSPP on in Purbeck last weekend. I didn't know what it was, but the person next to me did. And I was like, gosh, that's a mighty large buzzard. And they were like, (laughs) (laughs) and they they were like, no, it's it's a white-tailed sea eagle. Look at it. It's like a barn door. It's massive. And I said, well, where's the white tail? And they said, no, it's young. They don't have white tails when they're young. And I was like, well, there we go. How many many white-tailed sea eagles have I seen before and not realised? Absolutely. Um, so that was that was super exciting, actually. So I'm maybe very I jealous. am a birder. Very very jealous of that. I'd not seen a white-tailed eagle yet, and, Have you and not? we had one. Yeah, well, in the first lockdown, way back when, seems like in the distant dark past now, um, we had a white-tailed eagle fly right over the trust here, like a hundred feet above the trees or so. Everybody oh. got here, got super excited. I was not here that day and I just I've never <laughs> no. forgiven the people that were here that day it's not their fault but I just don't forgive them no well you know you've got to hold a grudge against something I suppose yeah. um, would that would that have been one of the ones from the Isle of Wight then do you think so it's not a million miles from you and I know they it's travel not. immense distances 
Yeah, well, funny enough, you should say they travel immense distances because we actually discovered that one had been a bird that had travelled across from Scandinavia somewhere. So it's oh, wow. actually a bird that just kind of fancied a bit of a day trip by the sounds of it, rather than just yeah. a little stone's throw away on, on the Isle of Wight. So, yeah, that's still still to come for me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing my first white-tailed eagle. But, um, yeah, so pleased you've had a chance to see one. And oh, thanks. Funny you should say about them looking slightly strange because they often call the buzzard the tourist eagle. Have you heard this? No. So, so many people go to Scotland to go and see white-tailed eagles and so many people come back saying that they've seen a white-tailed eagle. <laughs> Whether that's the case or not, and they're just very big buzzards. Who knows? I, I went to the Isle of Mull last year um, and I was like, yes, this is going to be an amazing place. I'm going to see otters. I'm going to see white-tailed eagles. And I saw so many buzzards. <laughs> so many buzzards. I'm now wondering if perhaps maybe one or two of the buzzards were just juvenile eagles. Because hey, I was just let... looking for that white-tailed. But predominantly, yeah, I can see why people come back from Scotland having seen loads of buzzards. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go with that. Let's go with that you just, it was just mistaken identity. And maybe seen I did, yeah. <laughs> so many eagles, so many eagles. Um, so you're, you're a fan of birds, which is great. Has anyone ever come on this podcast and said that they're not? Not yet, but we have to check. We have to sort of vet people just to make sure that you're on the <laughs> if on I, side. If I'd said no, would you have pressed a big red yeah, button? Yeah, there's, there's, on our meeting, there's a red the button course. that says uh, close <laughs> meeting, end meeting. <laughs> um Oh, sorry, I, I waylaid you. Yeah, your question was, do I have a favourite? You do, favorite? yeah. Have you got a favourite bird um, of prey? I think I do. I think I do. And it's it's the red kite. And it's mm. because I don't know anything about it. But I get this amazing... I get so excited. It's a very instinctive reaction. I get really excited when I see them. I just think mm. they're absolutely beautiful. I love their silhouette. You know, um, there's a lot of them near where my grandparents live in Reading and... The drive on the M4 has probably yes. been the reason I can distinguish between a buzzard and a red kite because I'll be constantly looking for them. But it's one of those things where I've I've loved them for a really long time and I've almost deliberately not Googled them because I've just got a very like innate happiness when I There's see them. There's a certain mystique think, about that, isn't there? Yeah, and I think I think sometimes that we should just embrace joy in nature for what it is. We don't always necessarily have to label everything and know everything about everything. If we see something and it makes us happy, there's something very pure and childlike about that. And I think that's quite rare. So that is my, that is why I haven't Googled the red kite. But perhaps you've got some fun facts. Is there anything really cool about a red kite I should know? Well, we spoke about the red kite very briefly a couple of episodes ago, as uh, as it happens. And one of the things we were talking about is what a fantastic uh, comeback they've had, almost from extinction level numbers in the UK. Mm. And now, as you said, there's certain pockets around the country in in England especially where you can just see kind of vast numbers of these birds really you maybe see 20 or 30 at a time I think the most mm. we've seen here is like late teens 18 or 19 in the sky at a time that is a lot that is a lot it is a lot it's a lot to see them all together mm. uh, so I guess but one of my fun facts is despite their size they they're mostly a scavenger so they're, mm. most, they're mostly using quite small talons just to eat, eat eat small things worms and rodents they can catch other bigger they things they eat worms but... Oh yeah, they're they're prime oh, wormers. I had there we go. That's my fun fact that, that I'll be using that from now on. I had no idea that they worms. That's really exciting. There yeah. we go. Thanks, Tom. I knew you'd be the person to ask. <laughs> Brilliant. So you said that you kind of seen um seen red kites on your kind of travels around, seeing your parents. Is there a point in back through your your life where you can think of where your love of the natural world might have begun? 
I don't know if there is one specific point, and I've been asked this before, and the, the question, the, the answer I've kind of come around to is I think it's always been a big part of my life. I think I drifted away from it for a bit, um, maybe in my kind of late teens, early twenties, and has kind of I've kind of come back to it. But all the feelings that I get now when I reconnect with nature, they they feel very familiar to me because I think as a kid, you know, I was always my family were always going to like national trust properties every Saturday, Sunday. We were always out for a walk, always out in the countryside. Um, you know, when we went on holiday, well, I was really lucky to do things like go to like SeaWorld and all of these things, which I appreciate are slightly controversial now um, in some ways. But I cannot deny the impact they had on me as a small child to go, look at how insane life is in the sea. You know, always watching Attenborough documentaries and stuff. And as a kid, I, I was always trying to, you know, I remember one period of life where I was in my bedroom trying to grow like as many plants as I could on my windowsill. Excellent. Just something about this need to, to grow and like make things. Yeah, and there's an apple tree actually in my parents' garden, which I started off life in a yogurt pot on my wow. windowsill. So so stuff like that, I think I think it's always been just something that I've been drawn towards, but I didn't really start labelling that as a thing that I was or was feeling. Uh, until maybe the last decade or so and, and really trying to learn more about it is um you know back then it was just something that I was swept up towards without it being like a massive personality trait I don't know yeah you and know what, I, you know what I mean yeah I do I absolutely do and I I, I can really uh kind of empathize with you on the idea that it's just a feeling that it is just something mm. that's comforting it's something that you know you love even if you don't know why you love it and I think that's okay it's okay not to, to label everything and, and know everything about the species that you love it's just enough to love it sometimes i think i think that there's there needs to be more room for that um i think that nature and conservation while i love being a massive part or <laughs> i love being a massive part, while i love being a part of the amazing community of people that work in nature and conservation um i think there is an exclusivity that comes with uh, a lot of the well I've seen you know 750 species of birds and I can name every tree mm. that you're going to walk past and I know like the breeding cycles of all the insects in the garden I think that can create a bit of an us and them dynamic which is not helpful quite frankly when we're mm. a nature depleted nation and we need more people to be connecting with nature and it's it's just good for you to connect with nature the mental health and, and well-being benefits of being nature connected are undeniable. So yeah. anything we can do to just encourage finding joy in nature, not necessarily naming everything, I think is just a wonderful thing to be doing. Yeah, totally, totally. And just encouraging people to get out there and just experience what they've got. Because it's just, it's everywhere, isn't it? It really is. Go yeah. out your front door and there is nature to be found anywhere. And of course, you know, people come to places like us, a bit like you mentioned, going to places where you can get that close proximity to essentially wild animals mm. that's kind of what we're all about really is giving people the opportunity to to see things that they wouldn't really get close to normally and it can have a lasting impact so it's good to hear that's something that's happened for you um oh 100 I'm, sh I'm sure you've inspired many many children tom i'm sure i'm sure what you guys have done has got has encouraged loads of people to look skyward and try and try and see what's up there so fast forward to today then you are a science communicator you're a naturalist you are a podcast producer and and presenter how do you just when somebody comes up to you like let's say you're attending a wedding and somebody goes oh emma so what what do you do then what what is your job oh what gosh. do you do <laughs> this is this is like um imposter syndrome 101 and i've had that exact situation at every wedding i've ever been to well you know of course you do it's the go-to icebreaker isn't it what do you do 
Um, I have tried to distill it into I do environmental communications, which are geared towards making the planet better because that's that's really loose. And like you said, that includes, you know, working with NGOs and working as a podcast producer and a podcast host and and an all myriad of things. But the one thing that ties together the communications that I want to work on is that they're creative and they try to connect people with the planet and, you know, yeah, try and try and have a positive impact with the projects that I work on. That's brilliant. And that's really the first time that I got to know who you were was through one of your projects, telling people how they can uh, they can do things that were helpful to our planet that is suffering. That was through For What It's Earth, which was the podcast I had the joy of um, of appearing on a few episodes ago. Um, how did you kind of first start that idea? Like, where did that come from? So For What It's Earth, um, so the concept of it is that every episode we look at a different topic and we try and break down the topic. Perhaps it's something you've heard about in the news and we make it a little bit more digestible, understandable. We try and get rid of all the greenwashing and we explain what it is, but then we also try and give listeners actionable things that they can do to support or help or be better in that particular topic that we're talking about. So it's not just a, you know, the planet is burning news podcast. It's very much, well, how can we empower individuals to feel as though and to genuinely have a positive impact in something that could be stressing them out? So for me, I, you know, at work with friends and with family, I was just having the same conversations with people over and over again because people knew I was nature and sustainability minded and wanted to, you know, so they'd be like, well, I heard this thing about plastics, you know, what do you think? You know, does recycling genuinely work or have you heard about fast fashion? And it's like, yes. But I, then I was maybe getting slightly impatient having these conversations over and over again. And I realised there was definitely an appetite for oh, well, I've heard this in the news, but I don't really know much about it. Like, what's going on? How does that really fit in with me and my life? And then more importantly, can I and should I bother doing anything about it? So that was that was kind of when I was like, well, I love podcasts as a medium. I think they're really exciting. I know you do too, because it's a great way to literally talk to someone in their ears. And I think you can build really interesting yeah. like relationships with listeners, particularly if you're a consistent podcast and you can allow people's personalities and, and, and things to flourish. And so I thought, well... I've always been excited by the medium. Let's just give it a go. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And I roped in my friend uh, Lloyd, who I went to university with, and he's a marine biologist who's also very much looking at kind of, well, what can I do? Can I do anything? And, you know, he loves the field of communications and values that as well. And, and, and we both share that kind of drive to talk to people beyond our immediate echo chamber, perhaps, and, and help people do more planet positive things. So that's that's where it kind of came about. And then we didn't really think that anyone would listen. And then lo and behold, some people, yourself included, did. And um, I think what we what we really got a great response from was thank you for, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, thanks for giving us the tools and to helping us. You were basically doing the research for people, you know, so instead of having to spend a couple of hours yourself Googling fast fashion and trying to work out what you can do about it, you just listen to us natter along and we'll explain what we found and what surprised us and all of those good things. And, you know, we're not experts, so I'm sure we've got a few things wrong here and there. But largely you're coming on a journey with us as friends and we're all kind of looking at this crazy world that we found ourselves in and just trying to be better where we can. Yeah, it felt like to me when I've been listening, it's um, you're kind of in on that conversation. So you're absolutely right. If you're involved with anything with the natural world, conservation um you know trying to trying to protect wildlife people there's always that kind of what about ism about things so it's you know 
okay, well, I heard about recycling that actually when it gets into that big truck and it heads off to recycling center, it all goes in landfill anyway. So what's the point? Mm. Like I've definitely had those conversations with people and, and it's, it's hard to field responses and also making sure people know that you don't necessarily have all the answers. Some things are still unknown. Um, and it is a confusing landscape, isn't it? To try to, to navigate what, what can we do as individuals to make a big enough difference for it to matter, to change our lives mm. for it to matter enough to, to have done that. Um, one of the, my favorite things that you do each time is you bring something to the table that you have done yourself. Your what one thing have you done to to support the planet? Um, for any of our listeners that are thinking they want to kind of get on board with this, because it's kind of a cool little thing to just just eke in little eco friendly nuggets mm. into your life. Um, if you could pick three things that you have done to make yourself more sustainable or three things that other people have done that you've picked up on ideas when you've done this part Ooh. of your podcast okay what what would they be <laughs> so um the concept of the what one good thing have you done this week that you've just mentioned was like we don't want everybody to think that you have to do a massive thing every week so we do very often come with quite tenuous links which can be quite funny. It's it's lovely to discuss those with friends and with guests as well. We, we asked you and you came on, you know, what have you done this week? So it's great to hold everyone to account, but it's a really fun mechanism of sharing ideas because something that may have worked in my life, you might then suddenly go, oh, that would be really easy for me to try that too. Um, and then you get the tried and tested approaches of things. But if I, if I had to sit down and if people were asking me what makes the biggest difference, so this is what I'm trying to talk about these days, what makes the biggest difference? for three things that people can do if they're really stressed about the planet, uh, aside from things like, you know, trying not to fly and using public transport and, you know, eating less meat and eating locally and stuff. Those are the obvious ones. The one that I normally start with and is quite contentious at the moment, but I'm going to leave here um, because overall, hopefully things will get better, um, is looking at your energy supplier. Now, I'm not going to tell anyone right now that they need to change their energy supplier because... Lord it's knows we're all going to struggle to like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely crazy. But when things, if things normalize, one of the best things you can do is switch to a renewable energy supplier if you're not already on one, because um, you're going to be spending the money anyway. And not only does it lower your personal carbon footprint, it's a habit, that, you know, it's, it's one, it's one thing that you do once and then continues to be good. You just switch supplier and then you continue to be good. Um, but also the money that you're, putting into that industry goes into the development of renewables in this country and that's a sector that does need development so yes. take that I money it out kind of boosts the demand for that doesn't it yeah precisely the more the more we can boost demand the more likely we are to develop better and cheaper strategies so that's that's one to think about but one i'm absolutely not trying to push too hard at the moment <laughs> um and the other <laughs> the other one is um like i one of the things i learned the most about when i've been doing for this earth is to move your money because if you are, you know, if you're doing these things, if you're recycling, if you're avoiding fast fashion, if you're dodging meat and you're only buying your food from a local farm shop, that's all wonderful. But if your money is sat in a bank, which is investing all of your savings in fossil fuels, yeah. that completely undermines all of the good that you're doing. And it was like a light bulb went off when somebody said this to me. It's so obvious, but I had not made that link at all. And I was like, good, you know, we are, we are taught to earn. We are taught to line our line our bank account to give us security. And, you know, to be able to retire in comfort and to, you know, we are, we are literally in a, a society which teaches us to earn and to earn as much as we can. So if we're working that hard 
why are we then putting it somewhere which completely misaligns with our values? So you can have a look at banks like Triodos, um, and there are a whole bunch of other ones, but not normally the massive banks that you heard of, I'm not going to name drop. But um, banks like Triodos will invest in, you know, smaller communities, businesses, renewables, um, and all it takes is for you to set up a bank account with them instead. And then your hard-earned savings are aligned with your values. And again, it's the same as switching to a renewable energy supplier. It's one bit of paperwork. And then it continues to be good long-term. Yeah, I to- totally so, did that one. Did you? Yeah, I did. Yes, Tom. I did, did that one. <laughs> nice. Um, and then the third one, and I appreciate these are quite big ones, but the third one's really easy. It's just talk to people. Talk to people about climate. Talk to people about the planet. It helps you deal with feelings of eco-anxiety if you are struggling with yes. eco-anxiety, you know, being part of a, a community. But also there's a lot of chatter right now about it being one of the best things that we can do as an individual. Because, I mean, just doing a bit more recycling, if I'm honest, doesn't do very much at all no. in the grand scheme of things. But if all of us start talking about climate and climate becomes a bigger part of kind of the global conversation and the community conversation, more people are going to vote with the planet in mind, um, act with the planet in mind, make their voices heard too, and we're more brilliant that is a it's it's so difficult sometimes to just sort of fight through like i think you mentioned greenwashing where you know you can buy this bottle because it does this thing you can buy this thing made out of ocean plastic and it's so hard to fight through all of that to then arrive at at three kind of fairly simple ideas like you've just put out um and i think part of us we need to kind of fight our own ego on this a little bit because actually I'd really like to buy that bottle that's made out of ocean plastic because it looks really cool. Like, and I, and I can also kind of uh, show you that <laughs> I've got Have you seen my ocean bottle? I'm, yeah. I'm being really eco with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a little bit of that, but yeah, it's so, it, it, it's, it's simple, but it is really difficult yeah. at the same time. I mean, I think it's, if you need something, if you needed a bottle, you didn't have a bottle, absolutely, go for it. Buy the nice ocean bottle that you like. But I do agree. Sure. I think that so many companies have realised that they can make money out of sticking a green stamp on things and convincing you to buy things that you absolutely don't need and wouldn't spend any money on anyway. But because it's got a green label on it, you're like, mm. oh, well, I'm I'm doing a good thing by buying this completely unnecessary thing and contributing to a, a side of the economy that we don't really want to contribute to. You know, it's 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 tricky, but I've completely yeah. fallen for that many times myself now. Um, oh, me too. Yeah, totally. There's loads of, loads of junk in my house, I'm sure, that I've bought because I've gone... Ah, oh, well, that's made of bamboo, so that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm I'm not here to judge people for having done that. I'm I'm here to judge no. bigger powers. <laughs> I think totally, totally, and it's just so hard in the face of, you know, the enormity of the problem. So there's so many different sides of it, isn't there? And how you must have had to come up with some sort of strategy for yourself just to keep yourself sane when this is your day job. This is the thing you do on the daily. How? How do you stay positive about what feels like just such a demoralizing topic to be talking about, especially as so often people, it feels like people around you are kind of giving up. It's like it's too big a problem. How, how do you keep going? I mean, that's a big question with a big answer. I think the first thing is, I mean, how do I stay positive? The first thing to say is that I don't. I'm not positive all the time. Um, and I would hate for anyone to think, but I was a beacon of positivity all the time because it absolutely gets me down. Um, you know, this this year, I think, particularly this summer, actually, um, I've I've probably struggled the most with eco-anxiety. And I think you touched on it there slightly as well. I think seeing other people around me also getting to that point where they've gone, do you know what, I'm completely burnt out. I'm tired. Recycling doesn't matter. I'm, you know, and seeing other people around me also go, do you know what, I just need a break. 
I think that has been really useful in terms of like reminding me that I also need to take breaks and to stop and to just, you know, maybe not spend every day on social media, maybe not spend every day reading the news. It's never good news because good news doesn't sell. So actually, for me, prioritising spending time in the one thing I'm trying to save, I guess, or, and, and to, to, you know, drive a career around, spending more time in nature is the thing that makes me happy and it is the thing that helps keep me calm. And in a roundabout way, it's the thing that then continues to give me the drive to do the sort of work that I do because, you know, there's no point fighting. It feels as though there's no point fighting for it if I'm not also going in and being a part of it. Like that's that's the very thing that started my whole career and everything I do. But yeah, so for me, I mean, I'm this year I've got really obsessed with my allotment and like my connection with nature is very much now a connection with land and soil and growth and foraging and that kind of thing and and that really helps me connect with the seasons and there's something about being able to cook a meal for people that you love with food that you've grown a mile from your house or you've picked from hedgerows and you know that kind of stuff I just think feels very calming and comforting to me so acknowledging that those are the things that help um have been really useful tools for me this year my partner's also really into meditation and I'd give anyone that's kind of struggling with anxiety and stuff um, a nudge in that direction that's that's really helpful sometimes when I'm just feeling completely overwhelmed you know and sometimes you don't notice you're overwhelmed and then somebody else will say oi <laughs> you're you're a bit stressy today like you you're really furrowed and you're like oh I actually maybe I am so sometimes he'll sit me down and be like can you just do headspace for 10 minutes and I come out of it like yeah I didn't realize that I was carrying a lot of that until you're kind of forced to stop which is is really useful but I think also just finding a really nice community of people who love the same things and are passionate about doing the same things. And, you know, it's great to see the work that you guys are doing because you're all putting all of your energy into conservation, you know. And so trying to spend time with and working for and socialising with people that do that, as opposed to reading the news, reading the bad news and dwelling on those, I think is also really, really helpful for me anyway. So I've been really lucky to be able to forge a career in the last couple of years where I work with projects that I believe in. And that means that at the end of the day, although I can be knackered from work and a bit tired and a bit grumpy, at least I can feel that now that I've done something of value with my day. Yeah, that that helps with all the kind of clangings of negativity. But, um, I, you know, I don't I don't I mean, I'm, I think anyone that spends long enough looking at the state of nature at the, at the UK or in the world is going to find periods of time where they are overwhelmed and, and stressed and. I think it's important to feel those feelings and acknowledge that they're there before you completely burn out. Mm. So, so other than kind of doing your uh, your podcast hosting, and uh, I know you also work with uh, a few other organisations as well. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about some of the other hats that you wear in other parts of your life? Yeah, no problem. One thing I do like about what I do is that I do work with lots of different projects, so I can I I sort of jump around. My weeks are always slightly different, which is great, and it means that I can be part of groups of people doing really cool things. So yeah, um, podcasting is a big um, arm of what I do because I think it's a really exciting tool for science communication and that's what my training is in. So I work with, for example, Beaver Trust and um, also Women in Ocean Science on their podcast projects. So some of that's production, content design, um, and some of that's editing, that kind of stuff. But it's really nice to throw yourself into working with these small, agile organisations that are doing really exciting things for, for nature and for restoration and for communicating science and 
to be able to support them in connecting with an audience and raise their profile and talk to more people about things like nature restoration is, is really exciting. Um, <clears throat> I also work for a project called Dynamic Dunescapes. I'm the comms lead for this project, which is trying to restore and rejuvenate lots of coastal sand dune habitat in England and Wales. And now you might not think that sand dunes are very exciting, Tom, but let me tell you, you're, you're, you're wrong. Sand dunes are, are very they? Cool. Are they? I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> well, this is this is one of the big problems because most people just walk through a sand dune on the way to the beach. We're not like inherently connected as a lot largely as communities. Um, we don't really appreciate sand dunes. And I didn't at all. When I started the project, I thought, oh, great. I'm, I'm looking forward to leading comms for a restoration project that's improving biodiversity and resilience in coastal landscapes. Tick would love to do that. And now I love a sand dune. They're brilliant. These are so, huge Emma, ecosystems. Is it not just grass and sand? No. Is, am, am I missing something? Here? Oh my gosh, Tom. No. You even <laughs> get birds of prey in sand dunes. Come on. Um, Come there is, on. <laughs> there's a lot of sand and there's a lot of grass. And actually, that's, that's interesting. There's, there's actually too much grass these days and not enough sand. Oh, gotcha. so this is one of the big restoration mechanisms that we're looking at. They've become completely overgrown. Um, you know, we've lost natural grazing across many of our habitats, but also as conservationists, we thought for a long time that dune succession meant that sand dunes should be stabilised by vegetation. Okay. And now we've gone, oh my God, suddenly coastal sand dunes are one of the most threatened habitats in Europe for biodiversity loss. Why are we losing all this biodiversity? It's because we're losing this bare sand habitat that pioneer and rare like specialist species need to survive. So we're losing all this bare sand. And there are, there's nowhere else for these species like sand lizards and crazy cool wasps and beetles like for them to go with there's no bare sand. So that's one of the things we're doing is um, creating loads more bare sand, removing invasive species and trying to re-mosaic these amazing habitats so that they can be more resilient in the face of climate change and to, to support biodiversity. But yeah, they're, they're beautiful landscapes, Tom. Tons of wildflowers in the summer, you know, loads and loads of insects, yeah. loads of birds. Like my favourite thing is like skylarks over a sand dune. It's just the most peaceful summer moment yeah absolutely i mean i was very lucky to uh, live on the west coastline of of the uh, lake district national park so oh, fab. yes quite a few sand dunes and things up there and, yeah. and i think probably one like a core memory for me is watching barn owls quartering over Ooh. grassy dunes i mean it's, it was just beautiful there's nobody else in sight and it's yeah i mean definitely i can definitely get behind championing that as a landscape it's stunning Oh, that's you know I've I've only ever seen one barn owl, and that was local to me here in Bath. But they are just beautiful creatures, absolutely yeah. beautiful. Like they're just so ethereal, aren't they? When they they kind of look like they're lazily kind of gliding, but you know that every movement is really specific, and they're actually like hunting. It's just I think they're incredible. Yeah, yeah, you are you're right. Ethereal is the word. They're kind of ghostly in a way, aren't they? Yeah. Um, no, it's it's it sounds like a really exciting project. And the, the beavers are the beavers doing okay? We I think it's one of the first episodes of this podcast. We talked about the int- reintroduction of beavers, and we were getting really excited about it. Again, another thing that I've really been meaning to get get down to 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 see a beaver, but not happened yet. Still, still going strong as a project. Beavers are doing great. Are they? Uh, beavers, beavers are doing really well. Yeah, I mean, largely, <laughs> largely, beavers are doing really well. Um, there's there's been loads more kind of uh, in, so essentially kind of regulation of them being released is starting to become it's it's becoming easier okay. um, in order to for people to have um, not so many wild releases but like in, enclosured releases um, across the UK. And there's lots of okay. amazing case studies now in the last couple of years from those 
which have shown how people and beavers can work together really well. And there's tons of amazing science behind beaver wetlands, you know, helping to restore our landscapes, but also to mitigate flooding and to carbon capture. You know, there is so much science behind bringing beavers back, I think. And there's so much public excitement as well about bringing beavers back. That really the sticking point is proving how well they can serve humans and how and, and working out exactly how best to have them in and around our communities where they don't cause problems, they actually cause solutions. So it's not a case of just chucking in beavers in every river. It's working out where best <laughs> would be for them to be happy and healthy and to serve our community in the way that we need our ecosystem resources. But yeah, no, beavers, beavers are doing great, I think. That's good. Yeah, it's still on, still on my list to go and try and find one somewhere. Not disturb them, just just go and have a have a little look no just go and have a look i think they're they're amazing to watch yeah you it seems like you've got like loads of different things going on some of those things are ongoing like what what's coming up for you what are you excited about in the next Ooh, few months what am i excited about um so i'm working with some really cool partners in sweden actually to create some audio guided walk content that you can download to your phone and explore a national park in the north of Sweden where I've worked previously, which is also an amazing space to be studying both botany and climate science. So it's, and we get lots of walkers up there who, who are engaged in nature and the landscape, but maybe aren't necessarily thinking about their place on the planet and climate change or those kind of things. So I'm working on some really cool stuff with, with those organizations to kind of shuffle that audience ever so slightly into thinking more about their personal footprints or you know the wider impact of humans in landscapes so that's really exciting and it means that every now and again i get to go to north of sweden which um does sometimes mean i fly so i'm i have a massive guilt about that but at the same time i immensely love (laughs) living among mountains and talking to people about engaging with nature and hopefully creating some products that really help other people on their nature connectedness journey uh, to become better better for the planet. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm excited about at the moment. It Mm. sounds exciting. I mean, I remember when I first messaged you to see whether you would come and be on the podcast... The message that come back was, yeah, I'm actually in Sweden at the moment. So I was like, oh, of course. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> some of the pictures that come to, that, uh, that I've seen on some of your social media look great. <laughs> Thank um, you. So does that, if you're doing guided like audio walks, does, have you had to learn Swedish then? Or are they, <laughs> I guess no in English. <laughs> I, so I, I'm going to voice the English ones. I have slowly been attempting to learn Swedish. It's really difficult. I wish that I was one of those children that had learned a second language when they were young and just picked up more languages now, but I find language learning intensely difficult. So although I can maybe read a Swedish menu, um, I can't, I certainly can't talk about botany and climate change in the nuance that is needed um, in Swedish. (laughs) So no, I'm working with um, Swedish voiceover artists and translators for the Swedish version of the content that we're creating. (laughs) I'd Fair love enough. to be able off. to say that I was fluent in Swedish. That would be very cool. But no, I'm afraid I can't. I'm interested in what you're growing at your allotment. Have you had success? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm growing everything I possibly yeah. can. Um, carrots, parsnips, beetroot, lots of different beans, courgette, squash, loads of tomatoes, sunflowers, kohlrabi, broccoli. Um, I think that's mostly it. But that's plenty. Excellent. <laughs> so if science communication goes down the drain, green grocer and restaurant owner yes. could be on the horizon. 
come on growing <laughs> courses with me. We'll talk about soil and earthworms. Yeah, love yes, it. I think I'd there's a ready that. market for that. There's a ready market. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> come on over. Yeah, no, that would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Emma, it's, it's been so good to chat to you about... Uh, all things uh, nature and sustainability and everything that you do. Um, if any of our listeners fancy hearing a bit more about what you do and listening to the podcast you're involved with, how can they do that? Oh, thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's such a treat to be to be chatting with you. Um, I hope I haven't chewed your ear off too much about sustainability. Absolutely But um, yeah, if, if people are interested in listening to my podcast, For What It's Earth, it, well, that's what it's called. You can search for For, it's Earth, for What It's Earth on all good podcast platforms i think 68 is the episode that you were on tom so maybe listeners can start there and learn a little bit more about birds of prey we talked about birds of prey and climate change i think and if people want to hear a little bit more from me um for some reason i'm on social media on emma brisdy and i think i'm on twitter and on instagram i'm trying to use social media a bit less at the moment Mm. and just dig into other projects and be outside a bit more but i imagine that i will make a return to social media at some point yeah and there's also like if you've never listened to for what is earth before there's a back catalog of episodes isn't there so you can definitely get your fix from that troll troll through the 80 80 different topics and like so we get some really fantastic guests as well you know yourself included so there's lots of really interesting conversations um in our back catalog yes Fantastic. So, so now everybody who listens to this has got two podcasts to listen to. Um, <laughs> ours yeah, well, obviously, and yours. listen to Nature's a Hoot first, and then when you when you've run out of those, obviously, you obviously. can you can find uh, for what it's earth. But yeah, <laughs> plenty of audio. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. It's been a genuine pleasure, and uh, yeah, hopefully, come and see us here as well. Come and spend a day with I would us. I'd love to come and meet some birds, and uh, yeah, get get stuck in with the birds of prey. That'd be fantastic to have you here. I would absolutely love to. I'm definitely going to be taking you up on that. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's been really nice to see you again. And you can find out loads more about the science of sustainability and the little things you can do to make a big difference to our changing world, like Emma said, by uh, having a listen to Emma and Lloyd on For What It's Earth. It's just a great name, that, isn't it? Uh, the programme can be found wherever you get your podcast, just like Nature's a Hoot. Have you got any snazzy ideas about how you can help our planet? What do you do at home to make a bit of a difference? Um, let us know, maybe, by sending us an email. We're podcast at hawkconservancy.org. Or you can even send us a voice note through our social media pages if you'd like to. And who knows, you might even hear yourself on a future episode of this podcast. It's time for me to say a bit of a thank you, really. We've gained a few more listeners over the last couple of months, which is fantastic. Welcome to the family. Um, And some people have headed over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. And this seemed to push our ratings up quite dramatically. Um, I try not to look too much at ratings and uh, how many people are listening, uh, because it's just nice to know that anybody out there is listening. So thank you to you um, for taking taking the time out of your day to, to have a listen to my ramblings. Uh, but at one point, I headed over to the UK podcast charts to find that we were number fourth on Apple Podcast Nature Show Rankings for the UK. So thank you for listening. It's a genuine joy to share our passion of birds of prey. And of course, it's even better when there's more people listening to that. So thank you very, very much. Now, it's been lovely to be back with you for November, but sadly, we have come to the end of the episode. But as ever, I'll be back with you in a few weeks' time, in actual fact, on January the 1st. In the meantime, 
If you're feeling peckish for a bit more bird of prey content, you can find us on social media. We're at Hawk Conservancy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And these days, you can even find us on TikTok. Uh, on there, we are Hawk Conservancy Trust. There's loads of great videos of some of our birds on there. Until January, though, thank you, and bye for now. <laughs>